otherwise he would have prayed that uh, something bad would happen to me. But fortunately, this passage this morning does, in some way, exposit Psalm 2. And we are in the book of Acts, chapter 1. And if you remember last week, I got so long-winded, I didn't finish my third point. So we are going to finish the third point today, and I may or may not have a lot more to say. So, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what motivates 11 men to live and die and to turn the world upside down? What motivates us, 2,000 years later, to endure trials for the sake of the message, the same message that they preached? What motivates you and I to risk embarrassment to share the good news of Jesus to lost souls? The awkward moment when you talk to your barber and they say, what exactly do you do? And you say, well, I'm a pastor. That opens up a whole can of worms sometimes in our conversations. These questions are going to be answered in our passage this morning. What is our motivation? So let's go ahead and open in prayer as we go to the, the Lord who gives us this motivation. Father God, as we approach your throne this morning, may this sermon be a, an act of worship. May it be a, a fragrant incense to you. Lord, we uh, are in the midst of a very interesting time in our country's history, in world history, uh, even in the history of our church with uh, storms, damaging things, and uh, water dumping everywhere in our offices. Father, we uh, are so blessed that we can come to you knowing that you reign, our God reigns, uh, that we have that blessed assurance that we can come to you because you are God. Lord, I lift up those who are not able to be here because of sickness, uh, because of cancers, because of just weariness. Uh, Lord, I know how exhausting life can get and how the world can push down and give greater pressure upon us. Father, there's so many things that we can come to you in prayer for this morning, and Lord, I lift all of them up to you. Father, I'd like to lift up uh, Village Meadows Baptist Church as they uh, are preaching this morning. Uh, I pray that you would help them to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the community, that your name would go forth and it would be lifted high, that your banner, Overseer Vista, would be Jesus is Lord. Father, we ask these things, we long for these things to happen. Lord, be with us, be with me as I preach the word, be with our congregation as they receive the word. Father, I, I pray that this would be edifying to us, in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so hopefully you are in the book of Acts, and, and we looked at chapter, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then we had to stop because of my long-windedness. So... We're going to pick up 9 through 11. So let's go ahead and look at, at let's go ahead and read the first section again uh, to remind us of where we are. So chapter 1, verse 1 says this, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So we see that they had the message. The message is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the message that they are to be witnesses to. In fact, we even made the connection that we as Jesus' disciples now are to take that same message with us, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection. We can't separate any of those three things. Then we had the means. They were told to wait in Jerusalem. Don't go about witnessing without the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't build the church without the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to do this. The comfort, even. And so we have the message and the means, and this week we're going to see the motivation. So Luke, writing Acts, I think is more than just an orderly account of Christ in the early church. It provides theological information. It provides... Um, examples and guidance on so many topics. But it also points to our motivation to continue. How do you continue when something you've been working on for so long is destroyed? I'm reminded of a story of a, a missionary out in, and I think, I believe in Burma, uh, and or maybe even New Hebrides, but anyways, out there. And he was working for 20 years to translate the Bible. 20 years. What happened was a fire took the shack that he was translating in, burned everything down. 20 years of work were completely burnt to pieces. 20 years of translating a Bible into the language of the common people. All his dictionaries, his lexicons, everything he had was burnt to the ground. And he gathered with his, his co-translators, and they spent a moment of prayer and singing. And he said, you know... A road traveled the second time is easier. And they began to translate. And they finished it, I believe, within another five to six years. But think about the devastation that that brings. What led him to continue? What pushed him, motivated him to go? And if you look at the, the apostles, they all died for this message. Right? They died to spread this message. So with the message and the means covered... What is our motivation? Our Christian motivation comes from the fact that Christ rules and that Christ will return. Two things, Christ rules and Christ will return. In verse 9, we see that we are motivated as Christ rules. This brief passage introduces what we will often refer to as the ascension of Christ. 
Christ ascending to the Father. Have you heard that before? If you were in a more liturgical denomination or congregation, you would have Ascension Sundays, where you recognize the day that they put on the calendar where Christ ascended. And as you read verse 9, you're going to see so many parallels to many other passages. So let's look at verse 9 again. It says, After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Really brief statement by Luke here in the book of Acts. He didn't really expound on this much. But if you read chapter 2, you begin to see it expounded over and over and over. The reason the apostles were willing to stand and get martyred was because Christ reigns. The ascension is, it, excuse me, the ascension is important. Daniel 7:13 through 14 says this. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. So think about what Daniel just said there. He was having a vision, night vision. Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds. Jesus is taken up in the clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. Do you hear what's going on here? This is, this is like behind the scenes of what just happened in this passage. Jesus ascends to the Father. Daniel is given a foresight to be able to see this. Verse 14 of Daniel says he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. Go into all the world and make disciples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Do you see how that would motivate the disciples to give their lives to this? In fact, Jesus emphasized the importance of his ascension in John 6, 60-63. says, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus said some hard things, didn't he? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then, before, then, then, what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Would you be able to take my teaching more seriously if I ascended into heaven to stand before God? That's what he's asking them. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So as he ascends, we see he is powerfully ruling. In fact, Peter's sermon, just over here in Acts chapter 2, and we'll, we'll expound on that in a couple weeks, uh, Lord willing. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So on the, on the day of Pentecost, when, when Peter went and preached his sermon, he refers back to what they just witnessed in this passage that we're looking at here. It was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In the Psalms, David is pointing to Christ. Until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that cert with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's a, there's a reason why the apostles, the disciples, really began to use the term Lord in reference to Jesus. Because it is a term of ruling. Jesus Christ rules. He ascended because He rules. When Stephen was being martyred in Acts 7, 56, he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Does this sound like Psalm 2, Doug? Sounds a lot like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Saul the persecutor was stopped in his murderous attack on Christians because Christ rules. Look at, or don't look at it, Acts 9. I'm going to read it to you. Acts 9, 3 through 9. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting Christians that you are killing and throwing into prison, but why are you persecuting me? There's a significance there. Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. In fact, we see in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, 20 through 21, that Jesus rules in this age and the age to come. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21 says, He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but the one to come. Jesus rules today and tomorrow and forever. Peter also writes about Jesus' ascendancy. 1 Peter 3, 21-22 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities, and powers subject to him. I want you to think about that for a minute. Who is in control of the weather? Who is in control of the earth? Is in the hand of our Savior, the one who died for us. The disciples were greatly influenced by this event, weren't they? In fact, it it led to their theology. Only the ascended Jesus is powerful enough to enter the throne of grace to intercede for us, according to Hebrews. Jesus speaks about the kingdom in verse 3 of our passage this morning. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them with many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. The ascending echoes Daniel and power that will come from this ascension. 
And as you read the language of the disciples, they are intensely gazing at this event. This was an awe-inspiring event. right? We're, we're, we're talking about something that is unusual happening here. It's not like, oh, Jesus started walking up the mountain and then a, then a, a, a cloud blew in and he disappeared. No, he was elevated into the skies, into the heavens. It's what drives the apostles forward. It was, it's what makes them obey God in all circumstances. And it should be what drives us forward as a church. It should be what drives us forward in all circumstances. And from this passage, we can deduce a doctrine. I know that can be a, a bad word to some people, but a doctrine just means a teaching. A, a systematic understanding of this passage is very important. And so we're going to get into some meat this morning. A little bit more so than I normally go. We're going deep. So get your pens and pencils ready and your notes because we're going. So the doctrine here is that Christ's ascension motivates the church. And we are motivated to trust God and his methods and means to accomplish his mission. Christ rules from heaven. So some like to argue that God is not in control of this world. I have even heard it on the radio a couple weeks ago that this is Satan's world and God just does the best he can with us. And that you have little bits of power, you speak something and you can make it happen. Blasphemy. That is wickedness and that is evil. Satan is not in control of this world. God is in control and Satan is on a leash. And God uses Satan for his ultimate purposes. He allows Satan some reins to do certain things in order to better help us glorify him. This doctrine of the ascension is a great antidote to this error. This ruling of Jesus Christ, Christ rules, is an antidote to the idea that there's any authority that is not under his thumb. I think R.C. Sproul says it that uh, there's no rogue molecule in the universe. God is in control of all these things. The disciples never acted like Satan was in control, only Christ. You don't see the disciples hovering in a room worried about demons and demon possessions. You don't see them nervous about these things. They don't say like, oh, well, Satan was in control and so we couldn't, we couldn't share the gospel so we got to bind him with our words. They never say these things because they went out knowing that God is in control. Christ rules. The question is, do you know that? The reality that Christ rules can be applied as a great comfort. Jesus tells us in John 14, 3 that he goes to prepare a place for us. What an encouragement that Christ's ascension is one of love. The reason Christ descended was because he loved us enough to go and make a place for us. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 says it this way. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. I love that. Took the captives captive. He took the slaves as slaves. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. 
Christ's ascension was an ascension of love because he cares for us. We're not left to our own devices, but are encouraged by this. You know, I think of many here who are hurting in our congregation. We have many who are battling illnesses and cancers. We have just plain hard living. This is a hard world to live in, and it's getting harder. As our bodies break down, I think it's easy to lose hope. But know this, Jesus is ruling. God has a good purpose in and through all of this. We can flee to the cross for comfort when we desperately need it. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I want to ask you, if you are seeking this comfort, if you are in need of this comfort, if you are making your chemo appointments or your radiation appointments or you're thinking about the trials that you're about to go through or you're looking at your spouse and wondering how they're going to endure, have you gone to him in faith yet? Have you fled to the cross? Have you gone to Christ and begged his mercy and comfort in this time? Have you prayed for the comfort that only he could provide? Or are you distracting yourself with many things that you shouldn't distract yourself with? We also see a strict warning here in this passage as we meditate on the ascended Christ. I think we should see the warning that is inherent in Christ's ruling. Jesus rules. Are you submitting to his design? Are you submitting to his rules? And our passage in Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son lest he be angry, or give homage to the son unless he be mad, I think is how the CSB puts it. Are you rebelling against the living God? Jesus rules. Are we submitting? Or are we rebelling against his good care for us? You know, we had a storm this week that peeled back the roof of the modular, dumping water all over the project that really Barney and Joe have been investing a lot of time in, but all of us have been putting time and money into. And we've been working on this for several months, really fixing it up. Seems like a setback, doesn't it? Pretty devastating. We had to cram the office back into the main building. As you walk into the hall, you see all our paraphernalia. Not drug paraphernalia, but junk that we bring with us everywhere. And from a purely earthly perspective, this is a massive disappointment. It was very hard for me to come to church to work on Thursday knowing all the mess. All my books soaked in water. I was joking with Ryan that that's my one source of wealth is all my books, right? Because there's a lot that's been invested in that. But if Jesus is on his throne, if he is ruling, then this storm was no accident. It was no surprise, but a gift from his very hand. Sometimes when God gives us a gift, it feels like when you're a kid and your mom gives you broccoli instead of ice cream, right? He knows what's good for us. He knows exactly what's good for us. How can I say that that it all is well as I look around a damaged building? Now, I think the Lord will reveal in time why this was so good for us as a church. 
But there's a few things that occurred to me as we were sitting there. First off, I find my joy in Christ and not in a building. Circumstances don't determine my joy. Material things do not determine our joy. In fact, joy is found in subtraction rather than in addition. More stuff does not give you joy. Less stuff gives you joy. Because our joy is found in the one true living God. Now we have a building to move into that we can rejoice in. There are churches around the world that one small bit of damage will take them out because they have nowhere to meet. And we have a second building. Praise God for His providence, for His gifts. Also, the Lord provided a sweet sermon illustration. Right? It ties in great with our sermon today. And so we're able to be able to connect the dots that Christ's ruling has ultimate effect on all things. And then this also should lead us to examine ourselves in our duties. If, if Jesus is reigning, are we submitting or rebelling? Are we using his means and methods for his purposes? Or are we motivated by wrong motives? Am I grumbling at God for what he has given me? People love the Philippians passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But they often miss the context, don't they? Paul is saying, I can do all things like suffering intensely for the glory of God. No matter how bad things get, I can worship God. Though you slay me, still I will worship you, is the language that we have. Are we taking God's time and using it for his glory or our own? Are we fittering away the king's time with our own petty projects? Are we watching more Netflix, looking at social media reels, or even just wasting our time on silly gossip? Or are we spending our time as the king would have us spend? Are we seeking me, 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 I, 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 or his kingdom first? Are we spending our lives pointing to Jesus who reigns or are we bringing the focus on capital M, capital E? Finally, because Christ has ascended, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in good and bad. We can rejoice in the storms and in the calm. God is training us to trust Him in all circumstances. Are you rejoicing when hard things happen to you or are you grumbling? Are you cursing when something uncomfortable happens? Do you swear? If you are cursing, it means you are cursing Jesus who rules. If you are cursing your circumstances, you are cursing the living God. That's the definition of blasphemy. Our grumbling and murmuring is against Jesus who rules all these things for our good. There's a reason the wilderness generation in the desert, were left in the desert and died there because they grumbled against the living God. And if this wasn't enough, if this wasn't good enough, we are motivated because Christ returns. So not only is Christ ruling, but He is going to return. You know, angels often show up to interpret events for us mere humans. Think of the tomb and the birth of Jesus. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, while he was going, 
They were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. This reminds me a lot of the tomb. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So they were amazed as the body of Jesus Christ was taken up into heaven. The angel explain what's going on and they point to Jesus' return. And the implication is that the disciples should obey. Because Jesus told them, he gave them their marching orders. They had their commission, yet they were standing there staring into the sky, amazed. And I don't blame them. I think I would be the same way. Draw, my jaw would be dropped. You know, what is happening? But he says, you have a mission. You have a purpose. They need to go and return to Jerusalem and to wait for the promised empowerment of the Spirit. Their master gave them a command, and now they should be engaged with his mission for them because he will return in the same way, and believers will have to give an account. So as we're reminded in Acts 3, 19-21, it says, Therefore, repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. You want your sins wiped out? You start with repentance. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. So Jesus had to go to heaven, and then he will return. We know a few things about Jesus' return. Jesus himself tells us in Luke 21, 27, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Revelation 1.7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Every eye will see him return. He won't be alone, according to Luke 9.26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father, and the holy angels. He is going to return with angel armies. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep, with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by the word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. It's going to be quite an event, this return of Jesus. We have quite a load of armies and those who have died in the Lord, will return. His return is going to be obvious for people everywhere. So we can draw doctrine from this passage. And this is the doctrine. Christ's return motivates the church. We are motivated to be witnesses until our Savior's return or until He takes us home, whichever comes first. You know, there are some who argue against this. 
Some have argued that Jesus would never return. 2 Peter 3.4 says that the people were saying this, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. That was their excuse to continue to be drunks and to do, have orgies and to do all those wicked things. It's an excuse for wicked behavior is that Jesus hasn't returned yet, so we should live however we want. But Peter answers them, says the day of the Lord will come. Second Peter 3, 9 through 10, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand, delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You want to hasten the day of the Lord? Repent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud voice. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. It's going to be a pretty obvious event. You know, some have claimed that, that Jesus Christ has already come secretly. There's been a secret arrival, and he's taken away some. But we know from 1 Thessalonians that it's going to be with a trumpet. The battle cry will go forth. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first, rise first. Then we who are alive, still left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with him. So we don't know the when of his return, but we do know the how. And it's going to be obvious. There's no secrets here. The second coming of Jesus then must empower our mission. Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 through 1 through 13 about the ten virgins with their lamps ready with their extra oil, and the others that did not have their lamps ready with the extra oil, some, they were left out in the dark because they were not prepared. That sets the expectation that we too must be ready at any time. So this doctrine, it warns us against laziness, but yet lets us rest in His redemptive purposes. The second coming of Christ motivates us to spread the good news of Jesus to those around us to be involved in the mission of the church, to make disciples, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To be ready means spreading His message and taking the gospel to our own hearts as well. I like how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4. A person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Will you be found faithful when the Lord returns or when he calls you to heaven? This motivates us to be involved and to not sit back and wait for something to happen. It leads us to be engaged with our duties all the more diligently. Just as it was in Paul's it was Paul's aim to be found faithful, we too want to run the race set before us. That means we are compelled by the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15 For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for, those, for the one who died for them and was raised. 
as we wait upon Christ's return, are you living for yourself? That's a tough one. Are we living for our own comfort, our own happiness, our own whatever you want to label it? No longer are we as believers to live for ourselves, but for Christ Jesus, the one who will return. How will you be compelled by his love today? Because of your love for Christ, will you put away foolish things? For some of you, that means that you need more diligent study and preparation for a life of service. Some of you do not know your Bible well enough. Some of you do not spend enough time praying. Some of you do not know your Savior. For others, that may mean diligent, being diligent at your work to make sufficient money to share with God's people. God may have you at a place in your life where your job is to work. For others, it means waking up early to read God's Word before the kids get up. That's a, that's a sharp pain in my neck, all right? Waking up before my kids get up. For others, it means looking for that lonely person at church. And for others, it means sharing the gospel with those around you. And for you students who have just started school recently, it means being diligent in your labors. It means doing the best that you can, not for your own glory, but for the glory of God. That means working hard on your homework even when you don't feel like it. It means putting in the effort that you are required to put in. It means thinking about your studies more than your social life. I know that's hard for you in high school. We are called to bear witness to this Christ. What kind of witness will you be? Remember last week we talked about witnesses. You're witnessing to something. Something supernatural is happening here. The question is, are you going to be a, a vessel of the wrath of God or a vessel of joy? So are you motivated now? After all of that, three verses, are you motivated now? Will you take the message of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ and his ascension first to your own heart, then to the hearts of those around you in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you ready to see God turn the world upside down like he did with these disciples? Every person that repents of their sin and comes to Christ is a miracle. It is a miraculous event. That's what the world turning upside down looks like. I was going this way, and he turned and made me go that way. That's what it looks like. Something that you and I, we all can be a part of. So the question is, are you motivated? Are you motivated this morning to take the message and use the methods that he has given you? I hope you are, because I sure am after this passage. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for your spirit to fill each and every one of us here, that we would be motivated to take the message of Christ to the nations, that we would start here in our own heart, and we would spread to our neighbors, our family, and our friends, and it would carry out into Sierra Vista. And from Sierra Vista, who knows where? Lord, we pray for miracles. We pray for miracles of repentance, of turning of the hard-hearted to soft-hearted. 
Lord, we pray for those that are, that are caught in various enslaving desires, that they would be broken and became, become captives of Christ, that they would be compelled by the love of Christ. Father, we know two main things, that Christ rules and that he will return. Both of those bring great hope to our hearts. Father, we, we pray for a blessing on your message that it would not return void. And we ask these things in the name of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.